Hey folks, John here from Ace for Alcoholic again. Um, welcome back, 2023. It's been a while. Uh, today's conversation is with Wolf. She is a uh, mother. She is a science communicator online. She's an all-around fantastic person. Uh, I was really great to know her story after knowing her uh, online, you know, because there's always the parasocial um, relationship that we develop with people we don't know. And then to one of my favorite things is to ask people questions and get to know their stories. Um, so she was raised in the deep, deep woods of Maine and went to boarding school and drank and drank and drank and drank. And um, one of the things that sticks out to me is two of the things that stick out to me in today's conversation is that uh, one, we don't have to be in the throes of such heavy drinking to struggle with it every single day. It doesn't have to be constant rock bottom and blackouts every single day for us to struggle with alcohol. And also that compassion is really one of the most important things that we can have for ourselves and other people when we're trying to figure this shit out. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Wolf. So Wolf, uh, thank you very much for doing this. You're my first podcast in like six months. I've taken a break from this and obviously the first one of the year. So um, I'm really excited to talk to you. Not, not only because... Um, I found out you were sober. You mentioned it um, just sort of in passing. I don't think it was like the overarching message that you were doing in your post or the video, but, um, but I was like, huh, I really enjoyed this person's content and their message and all that for the last three years. And so um, thank you so much for, for um, agreeing to do this. I appreciate it. Absolutely. John, <laughs> thank you so much. This is also my first podcast in many, many months. Um, I did a lot of podcasts in 2020, 2021 and 2022, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, just as a guest, like I do not have my own podcast and I never will because I do not care to. So yeah, a lot of the times when I do a podcast or when I like am a guest on a podcast, people will be like, you should have your own podcast. And I'm like, absolutely never. It's yeah. too much for me. Um, but I do really enjoy being a guest. And, you know, a lot of people have reached out to me within the past year and been like, will you be on my podcast? And I've said no. Uh, but when you reached out, I think it's just because of, um, specifically because of your like podcasts and because of your presence in our little community of the wolf pack that we've built. Um, I was like, yes, of course, of course I will. I, I don't often like, I don't bring sobriety, my sobriety into conversation a lot because it's just, mm -hmm. it's just not relevant for a lot right. of people. And, um, like also it's just, I'm still like semi new to it. And it's something mm -hmm. that I, I like to keep to myself. Like I'm very proud of myself for it, but also like, I am a very private person, no matter how publicly it might seem that I live, I'm incredibly yeah. private. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I think, I think this, <laughs> well, the sobriety is something too, that I, I 
I hold very closely. And although I have in the past, I mean, been extremely public and been extremely, um, I've been fairly explicit about a lot of the, 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 the path, you know, everything that's happened, all of the stuff, you know? And so, um, I completely understand about wanting to hold it a little bit close sometimes. Um, and so, when I found you on Instagram, it was during the height of the pandemic, and there was um, extraordinarily uh, divisive conversations and actions and everything around vaccination. And um, I found your uh, the, the the message you were saying to be very helpful in trying to get to understand people that maybe we didn't agree with or finding the right information because even I was skeptical at first and I was like, well, great, John, that's a great place to, uh, to look at the information at hand. And then I was like, oh, it all makes sense. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Let's do this. Right. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you for that. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more. Uh, it's just really important and that there is this, um, I just think you, you found this middle ground that was really, um, helpful to a lot of people, you know? Yeah. To, to be honest, like all of that work was completely unintentional to start out. Um, I just kind of like stumbled into that (laughs) arena, Mm -hmm. um, really having no clue what it would entail for, for a lot of people, myself included. Um, but it, it's been, it was, it's been very meaningful to me to be able to be part of sort of the discussion and helping people communicate science to vaccine hesitant or anti-vax communities, specifically within the white wellness community. I know that it's helped a lot within the evangelical community as well. And I'm a highly political person and I always have been. And I think bringing all of my social justice um, background and understanding into it was was sort of like, uh, it, it was very invigorating for a lot of people, but it was incredibly draining for me. <laughs> um, it's been just like sort of a really wild, like fast progression and then super fast drop and and so hearing you say that, it's first of all, very kind. And secondly, um, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm still kind of in shock from all of it. <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah. it's this weird, um, like sort of whiplash that I've been dealing with for the past almost year now. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, it's, I, I, was really, really vocal for a very like long time. And then I just kind of like screamed my voice out of my body. And so now I'm just kind of gaining that back. (laughs) Um. I think that's what, I mean, that's part of it is that you were doing the screaming and in a way doing it for me. Right. But also that is very taxing on a person in their personal life (laughs) to scream all that and then have to go back and be, you know, a mother or a friend or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Uh-huh. <laughs> so like, so it's, I, it's I I I get where you're saying about the whiplash for sure. Yeah, and just kind of whiplashed from it. I think people didn't people thought, you know, oh, like she's like young, she just like has such a, you know, strong voice. She just and but a lot of it was like, no, like I'm I am a mom to a toddler throughout this pandemic. You know, I'm not only just a mom. I was a stay at home mom and a writer with my own like business. And I quit an entire career at the beginning of the pandemic. And that first year of this pandemic, that by the way, we're still living through, um, Mm -hmm. but like not a lot of people want to acknowledge that they just think that it's over, but it's like really not. Um, But, and that's an entirely different topic, but um, that first year of the pandemic was when I realized, and this is a great segue, when I realized that I had to stop drinking completely because I had the choice of either quitting drinking completely or slipping into what I refer to in my brain as real alcoholism, which is being completely dependent and just hammered all the time. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yes, it is. So 20 January 1st, 2021 was my first day of being sober. Um, and I remember in in 2020 having multiple occasions where I was like, yeah, like I really I don't want to drink anymore. Like because for, for a while I was practicing sobriety on top of that, you know, getting pregnant, being pregnant, being a new mom, like you don't drink obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, or I didn't drink and I didn't want to, but then I was finding reasons not to drink more and more reasons not to drink. Mm-hmm. And the pandemic hit And we were completely isolated. And my toddler, who I didn't know then, um, is autistic, but I know now he's autistic. He's almost five. He's phenomenal. He's the funniest person I've ever, he says the most out of pocket shit. It's amazing. But like, it was hard. I was struggling. I was majorly depressed. I struggle with chronic anxiety and chronic depression and the drinking, you know, that first drink always makes you feel a little bit better mm-hmm. and then it makes you keep wanting to drink. And then it just makes it all worse. Right. Which we'll get into that with my whole mm-hmm. story. Um, but I just remember sitting on the couch at the beginning of December of 2020 and being like, I can't, I just can't fucking do this anymore. So on December 31st, I asked my husband, Philip, my partner, will you make me a Negroni? Now, this is why I hate Negronis. I think that they are disgusting. Okay. I think that they are so gross. So many people will disagree with me. My husband loves Negronis. Okay. He will disagree with me until the cows come home, but Negroni, like any way you swing it, it tastes like shit to me. And so I was like, if I could have that drink, like I probably like won't even finish it. And it will probably deter me from alcohol for at least a few months. So we're going to try, we're going to try it. Got it. 
And so I, so he made me a Negroni and was all fancy because he likes to like dabble in like mixology. He's not a big drinker either. He just mm-hmm. like decided one day, like, I'm going to make a f- like fancy drinks. <laughs> oh no. Um, and I did not finish it. And that was the last drink that I ever had. Wow. Uh, well, I and- mean, I, I love that you knew knew yourself well enough to go like this will be the one that will turn me off or at least give me a um give me that boost to kind of and and again you're not thinking forever you're thinking this will just help for a few months right that's the initial right thought. and for me I was like this is closure mm-hmm. you know this is closure to a whole book and like what is the taste that alcohol like leaves what is the <clears throat> metaphorical taste that alcohol leaves in my metaphorical mouth it's like I want it to be a Negroni. <laughs> The last you know? memory, right? The last, My me- last memory is, God, this is shit for me, you know, right. because it is. And because a lot of people are like, oh, I, you know, found myself heavily drinking and heavily drinking. That was not the case for me um, for the majority of my adulthood. Now my college, the beginning of my college years and the end of my high school years, that's a different story. Um, my entire childhood that's a different story of like what I witnessed growing up in terms of like drinking alcohol, all of the adults around me. Um, but like this part of my life, my mid twenties to my mid thirties, I've not been at all dependent on alcohol. I I've like, really, I, there are very few occasions between the age of like 25 and 33 now, obviously, where I was drunk, where I could drink, but there was this knowing in me because of like the immense amount of drinking that I did in my early 20s and late teens, mid to late teens, actually, Mm -hmm. I should say. And that dependency, like people, people think that alcoholism is, oh, you're a drunk adult because you've had like a terrible life. No, I was adultified as a very small child. And that led me to become a manic pixie dream girl, which is like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't, have you heard that term? Like Mm -hmm. I was that, like I Uh, like, I'm pretty sure I was the poster child of that manic pixie dream girl in my late teens and early twenties. And yeah, (laughs) it's just that. And so I think that people think, Oh, like, I didn't know that Wolf was an alcoholic. And it's like, yeah, you, you wouldn't have known that because for as long as many people have known me in my adult life, like very few people have ever seen me drink because I was always finding a reason not to drink because I knew that I struggled. So, so yeah, so let's, let's go all the way back. back. And you know, the, the, the question um, that I I always like to ask is what do you, what is your first memory of alcohol? Um, Whether, and oftentimes, you know, just as a child, maybe not as drinking it, but um, how was it introduced to you in your life by those people around you? Maybe. So I have a really wacky childhood. Um, A lot of people will say like, oh, I, you know, grew up in the woods and I'm not a gatekeeper, but I'm going to be the first to say, no, the fuck you didn't. I, I grew up in the backwoods of Maine 
in an unorganized territory, 20 miles, 20 miles away from the nearest town up a dirt logging road that took you two hours to get up in a four wheel drive vehicle. And it was a one lane logging road. So like we had Canadian loggers and truckers on that road driving 80 miles per hour when 40 miles was considered like on that road, like so fast. Right. Um, we were 60 miles away from the nearest hospital, which took approximately four hours to get to. Um, that was the hospital where I was born. The only time I ever went, the only times I ever went to the hospital or like really to a doctor at all was when my siblings were born. I have three mm-hmm. younger siblings. My parents owned a sporting camp. So it was a fishing camp. It had previously been both a fishing and hunting camp that was built in the early 1900s. Um, and we lived in an area that's known as the wilderness, uh, watershed trust, which means that nothing else other than like a few select established buildings could be built on that land. You also couldn't have, um, on the lake, it was a lake, but we called it a pond because Maine, mm-hmm. <laughs> Northern Maine, almost Canada. Um, you couldn't have like more than, I think it was like a, like an eight power, like eight horsepower engine or whatever. So just a tiny little motorboat. Right. So that was how we lived. We had guests, most of them middle-aged men escaping their like home life Mm -hmm. coming up to fish with the boys and be very drunk um i would deal poker games i was a fishing guide i was my parents like only employee a lot of responsibility Mm -hmm. i'm five and a half years younger than my brother who um passed away and that's the closest age range that we have in our family. My sister, who's 23, she lives with us now. Um, and my other sister is 20 and I'm 33. So that's a big age range. My first memory of alcohol was one of our guests who I don't know his real name, but I called him uncle Sudsy holding me and accidentally pouring beer down my back when I was probably around two, two or three. Wow. Just like the smell of like stale beer. Mm -hmm. And like, I never felt safe as a child because a lot of the adults that I was around, um, were drunk or smoking. I can't stand the scent of cigarette smoke. (laughs) like can't handle it. Like absolutely makes me want to gag. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Just even thinking about it. I'm like, <sighs> you know, um, and it, it's just, that's a very, it's a very telling environment to grow up in. My father was an alcoholic, super abusive, verbally, mentally, emotionally, and eventually physically. And I was the one who or the brunt of the physical abuse. Um, 
so yeah, those, that's my first memory. And that's like sort of how my childhood was shaped in order to go to school. Um, we, first of all, we couldn't live where we were in the winter because our roads were too long and treacherous to be plowed. Um, so if we had wanted to live up at the sporting camp, up at the lodge, we would have had to use our snowmobile and everything to like get food. And it just, it would have been too cold and raising kids and everything. Like, I think my mom like put her foot down and was like, no, like my children will attend school at least. Mm -hmm. And so we, we went to school in the winter time in New Hampshire. Um, and we lived with my grandmother until my parents procreated too much. And we ended up having to like, um, buy a trailer, like near my grandmother's house, like in the same area of New Hampshire. So like I was a bookworm. I was a very, just, I don't want to say gifted, but just because I grew up around adults, I just, I had a huge vocabulary. Um, I grew up around a bunch of drunk adult men also. So I was very witty and like, (laughs) you know, like I could, I could read you under the table, basically, <laughs> um, like, you know, and knowing now that I'm most likely neurodivergent, like it, it makes sense that I was always the weird, the weird girl. Mm-hmm. And so in order to sort of escape this really just toxic and horrific, like lifestyle that my parents had built (laughs) because we didn't have electricity. We didn't have running water up there. And I like most certainly didn't have friends. Like my friend was my brother. Right. The only friends that I have were the friends that I made at school or like literally old men. Yeah. You know, like I like old men like to fish old men like their whiskey and they like to smoke cigars and they like to play cards and they like to you know do like weird shifty stuff so just imagine like me this tiny little blonde girl with just the entire personality of like an old man trapped in my body you grow up very quickly you know I grew up so quickly I had to start I wanted to start going to school more so I lived starting at the age of seven I lived far away from my parents at my grandmother's house and she was incredibly emotionally abusive and just mentally abusive and all of that so I had to be my own parent and Mm -hmm. then when I got older and my parents had my sisters I had to be their parent too. So it's a huge amount of responsibility for a small person, for a young person, huge right? Amount, um, huge amount. And on top of that, alcohol was always like present and not seen as like a problem, but I was scared of drunk people. I was so scared of them. And my dad, like being one of them, as I got into my early teens and everything, I was I was the problem child. I was disrespectful just because I had my own mind and I was a smart ass, but also I was right about everything. Intuitively, I knew that this is a fucked up situation that I shouldn't have to like live through as a child. So I applied to a private boarding school and I got accepted and I got full financial aid. And then I ended up going and what's at a private boarding school? 
a lot of rich kids with drug and alcohol abuse problems. That's what. But I was also the weird girl and the poor girl. Mm. And I wanted so badly to be loved. I wanted so badly to be loved because I, I, I didn't ever feel loved or validated. I, you know, you know, like as a kid, I just, I felt like I was way older in my like mental and emotional state than I should be. I'd been just burdened with so much responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so when my parents finally separated, it was because my dad was drunk. I got sick of him calling my mom a bitch. I punched him in the face and he beat the shit out of me. And then my mom decided that was a Thanksgiving. My mom decided I want my kids to have a normal Christmas. So I'm going to stay with this guy until after Christmas. And then he attempted to hold us all at gunpoint on Christmas. And the last time I saw him was him being carted away um, by the police. And that was 18 years ago, I think. And then my mom moved to the town where I was going to boarding school. And that's when I really started drinking. Because for the first time in my mom's life, she could drink. Because she wasn't pregnant and she didn't have to be the only sober parent for her kids. But she needed a drinking buddy. And that was you? It was was me and all of my friends. So on the weekends, because I was still a boarding student, we would go to my mom's house and we'd get hammered and we would party. And my mom, her whole thought was, well, at least they're doing it in a place where they're safe. She wasn't necessarily buying us alcohol, but she wasn't like prohibiting us from doing anything. Mm-hmm. And she was so cool about it, but also like, it was so fucked up. And also my friends and I were raising my siblings, like driving them to school, like, That's <laughs> like right. You've still got driving kids. them to yeah. the doctor because my yeah. mom was a single mom who had to work three jobs. And then in the summers, I also had to work three jobs. And so I was just partying, partying, partying. I was just hammered all of the time, pretty much from like <clears throat> 17 until I was 20, I was an alcoholic mess. And there was one point where I knew that this was not good for my siblings to see me like this. And it was my, my first year of college. I really went off the deep end. I didn't have any money. I'd run out of meal points. All I had was a bunch of Jack Daniels and one of those giant Costco bags of Skittles. Mm -hmm. And that's what I lived off of for a month. And when I, my mom came to pick me up, I I already knew that I was going to be transferring to um, CU Boulder, the biggest party school. Um, I already knew that I was going to be doing that. My aunt and my uncle lived out here and I had decided, I, I knew that I needed to like not be present for my siblings. I knew that I was going through something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want them to see me devolve into the mess that I became. So that summer I, I started 
I was really drinking like a lot and really partying a lot with my friends. And that's when I started to get like really physically violent. And like my friends would have to like lock me in a bathroom or tackle me because I was getting so drunk that I was reliving all of the physical and mental and emotional trauma that I experienced at the hand of my own father and all of the responsibility that I, and all of that like anger that I had tamped down for so long, finally had to permission to come out when I was drunk because I was out of control. Yeah. Because a lot of the time people, and a lot of people don't realize this, but when you're adultified as a child, you come up with systems of control, not just for yourself, but for everyone around you in order for you to stay safe. And anyone who knows me like intimately knows that I have major control issues. Like I am a very controlling person, not in like a, like you will do this kind of way, but just like, it's, it's little things. Like I'm always emotionally monitoring everybody. I'm always making sure that we have like a plan. I'm the planner. I'm the nitpicky. Like I notice the minutia Mm -hmm. and that's because like I had to growing up to survive for me and my siblings and my mom, you know, um, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I do <laughs> but, I do very but similar you, things. But when you're drunk, like blackout drunk, you're not there. You're out of control. And it feels so good. It feels like the best until you wake up in the morning and you have a blinding hangover and you're puking everywhere. And um <laughs> People are telling you stories, but when you're young, like I was, it's funny. Yeah. Like it's funny because you're the party girl and you're like the cool girl. And let's get this straight. I wasn't the cool girl, but I certainly felt like, oh man, like I got plastered. Like that was fucking hilarious. And I also felt like, oh, like I'm a good time. I'm so much fun. People will love me. You know, like boys will love me. Girls will love me. Like I'll finally get that male validation because I have daddy, daddy issues. I hate that term because it's like the only one who had issues was my daddy. (laughs) Okay. Like, let's just get that Mm -hmm. straight. Um, But like, I just so badly wanted to be the like mystical, like manic pixie dream girl. So I became that and the more that I like got into my early college years the more I was like making myself into a caricature of myself through my partying habits and like then it felt like I could escape and the funny thing is is everyone's like oh like so you were pretending yes but also I was getting a degree for being a professional pretender. I have a BFA in theater performance, everybody. (laughs) And if you have ever been to a theater kid party, you know that that is some fucked up shit that we do there. Okay. There. I was in technical theater. I didn't actually, I did a couple of one acts, but I, (laughs) of course you were. So, you know, baby, I've been to those parties. Yes. We got wild. Don't we? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Very much so. Um, So this is, so you, you have found a way to not only like when you were talking about um, reliving 
the trauma from your father and the abuse and stuff like that, because you could now cut loose and you were recreating it, I think was the word you used. Um, and I used to do something similar. I'd get drunk and I'd get into arguments with, you know, my girlfriend at the time and, and I would hit myself. Like I would physically, I would take my fist and I would punch myself in the head. And (laughs) later I found out what that was, you know, obviously talking to a therapist and he's like, well, so did your father hit you? And I said, yeah. And he's like, well, you're just, you're repeating that you're, you're doing that, um, that same exact thing, because that's what, you know when you get angry or sad or start crying or yelling that the, the, so you're just, you're just putting the abuse back in there. That wasn't enough, obviously to stop me from drinking. There was still plenty to do, but, um, but you do that so on and so forth and you're, you're blacking out. And so this is, this is college. Um, but you said Skittles, Jack Daniels, you have this moment of like, this, this epiphany that raising your, that your, your younger siblings don't need to see this. Yeah. It's something, what was the, the, the moment or the evening or the day that, that changed that? Um, I was incredibly hammered, but doing my homework and my little brother who didn't have a cell phone at the time called me on my mom's house phone and was just crying And this was the first time that he had ever called me like that. And he was like, they're all ganging up on me. They're saying that I'm like dad. And my brother was young. Like, let's see, I was, how old was I? I was 18. And so my brother was minus five. And my brother was 13, 12, 13. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just remember being like, you're, you're not buddy. You're not at all. You're not like dad at all. And thinking in my head, if anyone's like dad, it's me. Um, and thinking about why, you know, I, the amount of times that I tried to get my mom to leave my dad and then I'm just turning into my dad and realizing like, I have to be away from them Mm -hmm. because I can't perpetuate this cycle over and over again. Um, you know, that's a really hard thing. I just, I started looking for options and I went out to visit my aunt and uncle in Colorado, here in Colorado, where I live now. Um, And I toured CU Boulder, the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I remember sitting in front of the theater building and looking at the mountains and looking at the like really cool campus with all the all the flagstone and being like, yeah, this is, this is where I belong. Like, I feel like I can figure my shit out here. And, um, in a few ways I did (laughs) through trial and error, Mm -hmm. I figured my, my party girl tendencies out. Um, and also 
I was sort of forced to because my second year at CU, I was diagnosed with cancer, with ovarian cancer. And I had to stop partying, stop drinking. Yeah. yeah. That will that'll um, do it. That that'll do it. That'll do it. I stopped partying. I start stopped drinking. But the kicker was is that I um my first like actual like boyfriend committed relationship. It's so funny that I say this because I actually my first actual committed relationship was with my friend who turned into my girlfriend. Christy and we did the typical like U-Haul lesbian thing. We moved in with each other and then two weeks later broke up <laughs> because that's what women who love women do. Mm-hmm. So then we were just roommates and like friends. And then I I um got into this relationship with this guy who turned into be exactly like my father, and yeah. it ended in a restraining order. He had been drunk. He tried to strangle me, but I was so victimized that I was still like trying to desperately maintain whatever relationship I could with him, even though like he had gone through all of my chemo with me and everything like that. Um, So my senior year, I was clean. I... At the be- actually, no, I wasn't clean. I shouldn't say that. I, w- I was I was a wino. I was drinking a lot of wine. I wasn't violently drunk or partying or anything mm-hmm. like that or like go like, but I was still like going to parties, drinking a lot of wine, drinking a lot of beer, but not drinking hard liquor, not drinking hard liquor. So I guess I was clean from that sort of. Um, and I was in a show a main stage show. And there was this guy in the show and he became my really good friend. He was actually an electrical engineering student, completely opposite side of campus who just auditioned and got cast as my brother in this main stage production. It was a terrible show though. Waiting for Lefty. I don't know if you know of this show. I do not. Yo, like it's, it, it was, it, maybe it's a good show if it's done by the right people, but this director that did it, she's a wackadoodle, wackadoodle zoo kind of person. And so it was not the best Mm -hmm. show. Um, and so the opening night he had invited people to come this guy, uh, Kevin, my friend, and he invited the guy who is now my husband, and from the second that I met Philip, I knew that I had found my person. And that's when the heavy drinking, the violence, the <laughs> blackouts, all of that stopped. I was still drinking. Right. But it wasn't binge drinking. It wasn't party girl drinking. Um. Because for the first time in my life, I felt seen and I felt loved and I was seen and I was loved and I have been since. And ever since I met Philip, I've been trying to find ways to not drink because 
I found the relief that I was looking for and I knew drinking was not it. And I didn't want to lose the good thing that I had, which was this wonderful person in my life, my forever person. Yeah. When people say love at first sight, like, and they make fun of it. I, I, cause I used to be that person, but no, it's for me, it's a real thing. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it, you don't think about it and you do like to make fun of it because you don't have it. And then you find it and you're like, oh, well, of course, how could I have not, why did it take so long or whatever the thing is, but it just changes. Um, and these external factors, finding somebody who, who, who can be your partner, not just your boyfriend, your husband, your girlfriend, your wife, uh, whatever those things might be, um, but your partner and your teammate um, really lifts a huge burden. Um, and I think that a lot of times it will alleviate, say, you know, whether or not you're an alcoholic or a problem drinker or heavy drinker, you're like, oh, now I have help. Oh, now I have someone to talk to. Oh, now I have someone to who will listen to me when I wasn't being listened to before or somebody who will go do something that doesn't revolve around drinking. And all of a sudden, these things seem to kind of disappear in a way. But as you said, for the last from the time you met him up until 2021, um, you're like, I'm looking for a way to stop drinking. It is still a struggle, even if. Even if I'm not blacking out anymore, even if I'm only drinking on Christmas or Saturdays or at picnics or whatever the thing is, every time you're drinking, you're thinking, gee, I wish I didn't need this. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, because yeah. that's so so it it's not the intensity and it's not necessarily the volume that um, that make the struggle. It's just that it's there and it's always there. And, 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 and it's the culture, it's the culture. Mm-hmm. It's so pervasive in our culture. And especially when you become a mom, wine mom. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole thing that I never dove into, mm-hmm. but you know, Philip has my partner, my husband, Philip, he has this really great saying that has always stuck with me is that, and he's like, Oh, my dad always says this. And it's that first drink that's as good as you're going to feel throughout the rest of the night. So just stop there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like he has a one drink rule like for himself, it's not even a rule. It's just, he doesn't go past one drink because he knows like, I'm going to feel like shit if I go past one drink. So why would I, you know? Yeah. And it's like, how can you have such a healthy relationship to alcohol? But it's because he didn't grow up like me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that he helps. struggled with the same issues as, as I did, but it's, it's really interesting. So yeah, I meet, I meet Philip and, um, then they like move around, move to Chicago, do all this stuff. I don't need to tell the whole history. Um, but basically we, I proposed to him, we, get married. And at my wedding, the night before my wedding, my brother gets blackout drunk and pukes everywhere. Now this is very important. My brother was a Marine and he 
just like me, had a really fucked up childhood. He remembers it all, remembered it all, lived through it all. And I started noticing the same pattern that I was going through happening with my brother. But I didn't know what to do about it. Um, and so I just kind of figured he'd be like me and he'd like, it would work through his system. It wouldn't be an issue. Fast forward, my brother comes out to visit when Philip and I were trying to conceive (laughs) and it was, it was just me and my brother for like a full week. It was right after he got out of the Marines. He was so happy. He was about to start, um, diesel mechanic school, um, and auto mechanic school. And he was just so like, there's a different part of him. And so we were having beers and everything every night, but we weren't getting like hammered or wasted. We were just having like really good bonding time. Mm-hmm. And then Phil, we went on a camping trip with Philip's sibling, my sister-in-law and her now husband and Tucker. And that's actually, this might be TMI for some people, but that's actually when we ended up conceiving <laughs> is on that camping trip. Mm-hmm. And it's because I was ovulating and I was like, I really want a baby. And, um, Tucker was like, oh, I'm going to set my tent up right next to yours. And I was like trying to like get him to not do it, but he kept like trying. And I was like, finally, I was like, Tucker, I'm ovulating. Philip and I are doing it tonight. Do you want a niece or nephew or not? Do you want to be an uncle? (laughs) And he went all the way, like a mile away and set up camp. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Um, But that's when your space. Right. And then, you know, that winter, like we had our last family Christmas together and I started noticing some things about my brother and I was like, Hmm. And of course I wasn't drinking because I was pregnant and Tucker and I were kind of, there was something between us. There was some tension there. And then I had Indigo Tucker came out to visit and he had a complete manic episode but there was nothing I could do because I was a new mom. And I basically like sat in a room with him and said, listen, like, I, I can't be this person for you anymore. You know, like I can't be this support for you anymore, or at least right now, like I'm dealing with my own shit. And he was drunk and manic and not talking and just like shaking in a corner. Mm -hmm. And I was worried. And we, the next day we had this huge fight and then we left on like, oh, he, he left and we were on okay terms. And then three months later, he died by suicide after drinking heavily in a casino with a bunch of friends. Um, and they stayed in the casino hotel and he hung himself in the bathroom. And the thing was, is that like, I had foreseen it, but I didn't know how to stop it. And I was, first of all, I was not drinking because I was a new mom. And second of all, I was a new mom. But the more stories that my cousin and I pieced together, it started to make 
it was very clear to us that he was not only struggling with the same things that I had been struggling with, but there was no way out for him. And his suicidal ideation had gotten so extreme that, and he was in so much pain that there was no other choice, but to get drunk and die. He had talked to my cousin about different ways, different dark thoughts and ways that he thought he was going to do it. And she didn't know what to do. And she was like, Tuck, that's, that's messed up. No one wants you, you know, to, to leave us like Mm -hmm. please don't do that like I'm here for you and everything but she didn't know how to do it like she didn't know how to deal with that and so that for me was sort of the moment where I was like fuck (laughs) like it just it didn't matter what I was going what I was going to be able to do for him or how I was going to be able to help him it didn't, it didn't matter at that point. And losing the only person, literally the only person who I grew up with, who knew me as a kid, you know, who grew up alongside me was a huge, just like wake up call to me. And that's when I really started finding ways not to drink. I would, I was a, so for a lot of people who don't know this, I was a yoga teacher and I led trainings and, with every training that I led, I would practice, um, this yogic principle called brahmacharya, which is a principle of abstinence from something or from a lot of things. And I would abstain from alcohol and meat and dairy, um, for months and months and months at a time. And it just kind of like started as a control issue with, my disordered eating stuff, which we don't have to talk about here. And, um, me just kind of looping alcohol right into the things that I was abstaining from. So I never was in AA. I was never in any sort of sobriety program whatsoever. Everyone around me still drinks. I just don't. And that's not a testament to like, Oh, the amount of control that I have, that is a testament to therapy and recognizing that my alcoholism was a symptom of the immense trauma of my past and things that I'm still coping with in my present. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, um, (laughs) it is a symptom that ends up taking over your entire life, right? It is a, it is a symptom of these deeper and larger and bigger things that, we have been carrying with us since we were little, 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 little kids. And so then all of a sudden alcohol is the only thing, at least for me, that I could see for so long. And I never, you know, now in hindsight, I was talking to my friend yesterday and, you know, like, what did he say to me? He's like, I used to drink out of ashtrays and now I'm worried about what the school district I'm going to be in, you know, is where I'm living. And, and, but I just never saw it as a problem, let alone there might be a solution. It was just wake up, be hung over, go to work or find a drink or deal with the hangover and do it all again. That was the only problem was like, oh man, I need to drink some more. I got to figure out how to deal with the hangover. It yeah. was never, it was never get Can't rid the of dog. the hangover, avoid it or stop drinking was never the solution. And it was- so- yeah. And when you're like that deep in it, this is just a funny little mm-hmm. anecdote. Yeah. 
this one time I had gotten, I had gone like on a trip to my friend's like bougie cabin or whatever cabin. Mm-hmm. It was a freaking mansion. And I had gotten plastered so much so that I had started beating myself up. My friend had to, my best friend had to tackle me. They locked me in a bathroom. I ended up wrapping myself in the shower curtain and sneaking smacking my eye on God knows what I woke up the next morning with a black eye, completely fucking like hung over, still a little bit drunk, like pukalicious. And I went to the fridge and I cracked open a bud heavy and I downed it in front of everybody and said, I got to get back to the town where my mom lived. I got to go to work. Mm-hmm. Yes. That sounds, I've done that. Exactly. I mean, it yes yes i know exactly what you mean <laughs> you know because you're just like i gotta like like person i gotta be a person now yeah let me have and a everyone was like your face is fucked up and you smell like you've been marinating in booze mm-hmm. and i was just like gotta go wearing the same clothes that i wore the night before i went to work yeah i made up a story about what happened to my eye Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're great at lying too, right? We've been doing it since we were kids to, like you said, to make sure that we're safe. That is the only thing that matters. And when everything seems like a potential disaster and or abuse, um, yeah, you, you'll say anything to kind of make everyone feel at ease and okay. Right. The, the emotional, the controlling, the emotional minutia that you were talking about before. And, you know, obviously we get better and um, we're not nearly as we're still heightened to it, but maybe we don't have to. I know I certainly I notice things, but I don't have to react to every single thing and I don't have to make sure everybody's OK all the time. Like mm-hmm. it's OK if people are going through some stuff. I'm like, hey, if you're not doing well. Let me know if you need something. If not, that's fine. You can just have a bad day too. You're allowed. Um, but yeah. But just uh, yeah, life is a little bit different now. But just having it's to different, fight- but that emotional manipulation and also like when people who care about you start noticing. Like I remember this one guy that. I guess I was like sort of dating him. It was more like just hooking up with him in early college. He was like, Hey, you, you kind of like went through it last night and you were like sobbing and you said some things and like, do you want to talk about it? And I was like, Nope, not at all. I got on a bus and I never talked to that guy again. Cause it's like, that's how far we'll go to avoid things. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. We'll just cut them off. Yeah. Because (laughs) I don't want you to like, worry about me or notice my problems or like talk about why my coping mechanisms are maybe not that healthy mm-hmm. when we're in that state. Whereas now I'm like, that's not a healthy coping mechanism. And like all about teaching my kid, like healthy ways to cope with his stress, to cope with his anxiety and his worries, you know, um, helping my sister, helping my husband, helping everyone around me, just like, let's talk about it. You know, like before that was not me at all. I'm a completely different human being. Um, instead of partying and like just having a good time and sort of overwriting these feelings and bypassing all of these feelings with alcohol, with partying, with pill popping, even, 
um <laughs> you're <laughs> the look on your face pill pop <laughs> like- yes no well that was actually i started on my dad's pain meds before i ever started drinking oh, at like 14 or whatever you know mm. swiping muscle relaxers so yeah oh you did that that's hardcore and that was <laughs> that was before i really started drinking that was the because it was it was easy it didn't stink you pop a pill at school you're high as a kite for like an hour you know two maybe it was fantastic. That warm, tingly feeling. Yes, right after geometry, going into driver's ed, it was no big deal. I wasn't gonna. I wasn't. I was. It was a class I thought I could just throw away. I didn't need to pay attention at driver's ed. I'll figure that out. So I was just a sloppy mess for an hour on a muscle relaxer at fourteen years old. Um. So yes, pill popping. I'm. I'm. I'm aware of that one too. Um. When you talk about coping mechanisms, and you know, you make a decision on, you know. The January 20 or January, 2021. Um, what's interesting to me is I need a program, right? I, my, my life was chaos and I didn't have much of anything. And w- the one that I found and the one that worked is the 12 step that I, that I practice constantly yeah. every day. Um, and so when you talk about coping mechanisms and what, are, what is the, what are the, what is the change and what do you do daily, weekly, whatever from January, 2021 that you didn't do before that helps you in those moments. Do you still have those moments where you're like, gosh, I'd really like a drink. I'm feeling miserable. A drink would really help me right now. Um, and knowing that (laughs) the night before you messaged me, Mm -hmm. a thought popped into my head. You know, I've been sober for two years now. I bet I could go back to just like having one or two glasses of Mm. wine because I tasted one of those non, I had one of those non-alcoholic wines. Mm -hmm. My sister-in-law brought them over because she's like, they were doing like no drink, whatever, like they weren't drinking Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, And I was like, oh, I'll try some of this like it's non-alcoholic and I was like oh I miss the taste of rosé wow yeah and so you quite literally that thought went through my head and I pondered it and I was like I'll I'll come back to that and then I got your message the next morning and I was like this is a fucking sign um really my biggest reason is my kid yeah when yeah. you have a young child. And when you, like, I have lived through every second of this kid's life. First of all, because like, we didn't have another choice because of COVID lockdowns and all of that. But second of all, because I'm pretty sure he's going to be my only kid. And I'm happy with that. Okay. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) being the oldest child of four kids, like, I, I've, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with just having one. (laughs) Okay. But, um, also my kid's autistic and that comes with a whole different, like there's, there's a whole different like guidebook and set of like parenting, like steps and, and everything. And I gotta be present for him. You know, he's the reason why I survived my brother's death, my brother's suicide. Like he's the reason why I am still here. And as cheesy as that sounds, and I know so much, and I'm crying now 
I know so many moms are like, oh, my kids are my everything. Like nothing compared for me, you know, there was nothing keeping me on earth except for him. There was like, if I didn't have a, a baby, if I wasn't a new mom, if I didn't have my kid, um, my, my mom's friend, Christy, she was like, yeah, if you didn't have this baby, you'd be up having breakfast with Tucker right now, <laughs> you know, in heaven. And mm-hmm. I, I was like, absolutely, absolutely. You know, there was nothing binding me to this earth before I had my kid, I loved my husband. I loved people. I I loved my siblings. The one person who like I could cling to was my brother because he was the only one who knew me. And then he left and I had a baby. It wasn't just a huge responsibility, but it was like, you know, I gotta, I gotta raise you. And if I can raise you in a way where you feel seen and loved and heard and you don't have to live through the shit that I lived through, the shit that Tucker lived through, then that's making my brother's life beautiful. That's making like his passing like beautiful or meaningful, you know, like that's somehow going to give him meaning in the beyond. Um, so that's, that, that's why. I was just like, I can either drink and keep drinking and keep drinking and become one of those wino mommies because this pandemic is killing me. And like, you know, like being like at home alone with your kid, feeling isolated, cut off, being immunocompromised, like dealing with all of the anti-vax bullshit in the world, dealing with all the political bullshit. Look at the dystopia that we're living in right now. Like, I was like, you're either going to have to be awake from it and like not love every second of it, or you're going to have to be hammered and drunk. And I was like, I'm, I will not be hammered and drunk because I have a kid to raise. And so every day I'm like, you know what? I'm not hungover today. Every weekend, I'm like, you know what? I'm not hungover today. (laughs) Yeah. And even though I'm just sitting on my couch, rotting in my pajamas and watching the Avengers for like the 5,000th time, because that's his special interest, like I'm still present and I'm here with my kid. Yes. Yes. and I think a lot of people like have that, but then a, a lot of people, they, they need like a program, but I've, I also like, I'm really weary of like programs and things now because of all that I've been through in the white wellness world and how culty that can be. And I just am very wary of groups of people coming together for like, <laughs> one one common special interest because i recognize Mm -hmm. how that can quickly diverge into a weird cult scenario and i will never be part of that again (laughs) 100 percent, and i didn't mean to imply at all you know mine was just that i needed that in that moment no you needed it because a lot of people need that structure and for me something that i talked to my therapist about is that i didn't need that structure because i'm such a control freak yeah Like, I can't let go of shit. Yeah. Like, I will 
like when I decide something, I'm very stubborn about it. And I'm very, I will set like controlling standards for myself. And so I didn't need that. Um, yeah, because of the need to feel safe and my control issues and everything like that. It's just, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I think, you know, one of the, when I found you and I, again, I don't know how the algorithm sent you my way or whatever. Um, and the thing that, that struck me in my own conversations in, you know, I had somebody who, uh, who was, who was very vax hesitant to say the least and said, are you going to get the vaccine when it comes out, John? And I kind of sat there and I was like, well, that's a great question. I should really know the answer to that. I should really like, I should dive into this. You're absolutely right. And I had no, I didn't want to be combative. I was actually very curious and interested. And when I finally ultimately did and having these conversations and trying to not just have it be about what are you doing? What do you mean you don't you don't get it? It's all right there in black and white. And I found you and you were like, well, it's about having compassion. And um, was it Himsa that you would talk about? And I don't yeah, know all of that. Himsa, himsa <laughs> non, non-harm. You. Yes, non-harm, right? And the thing that occurred to me and that clicked in my head was in this idea of alcoholism and um, and having bad ideas in your head is that I can't fight you about it. I can't say you're drunk and you need to quit drinking and you, you need to be the one to change. And if you just saw what your problem is, you would be better. And I was like, okay, so maybe I should just do my best to listen, do my best to ask questions, do my best to find out what somebody else is looking for and what they need. And if they want to choose not to change or to talk, or if they have, if their beliefs are so deeply rooted that that's how, what they're going to live with, then I simply cannot help and yeah. have to let it go. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, and that's what you helped me understand. Yeah. And that's like such a huge connection that to alcoholism, because when you're, when you know that someone is an alcoholic, like I knew that my brother was struggling with the same thing that I had been struggling with for years. I knew he was abusing alcohol as a, as a means to escape. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, you can either push them and be like, you're, you know, you're an alcoholic, like until you get clean, until you get sober, like, I don't want to talk to you, like hold that over their head. Or you can be like, I desperately want to help you. Like, let's talk about things, but they're not going to come and talk to you about things until they're ready, you know? And that's like a huge conversation that a lot of people don't, don't think of when they think of alcoholism. They just think that like the person is inherently flawed or whatever that they don't know. It's like, no, you know, you just, you want to ignore it because if you look at too, if you stare it too hard in the face, it's too much work. It's yeah. too much. It messes with your head too much. And it blows up everything that you've like created as your own reality for yourself. And that's the same thing with talking to any anti-vax person out there. Like it blows out of proportion, your whole sense of reality that you've created in order to keep yourself safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. You know, addiction is so prevalent in our culture. It's not just alcohol that people, we're addicted to everything. Like I have 3 million plants in my house, probably not that many, that's an exaggeration, but like 
I'm a plant hoarder. I have far too many plants. I'm addicted to purchasing plants. I'm addicted to knitting people's sweaters as a way to not like handle my emotions and to like not even really have to wrap my head around my brain fog from long COVID. You know, like there are things that it's like, we're just, we're just addicted to. That's what capitalistic culture is. It's helping us feed our addictions. Yeah. And you know, you can, you can look at it for what it is and be like, I'm going to abstain for everything. Or you can just say like, what are the addictions that are truly harming me right now and making it so that I'm not a functioning human being? Mm -hmm. Um, And you can like amend those. But like, so I guess to answer your question from a while back, like, what was it that like helped you fight that addiction? Well, it was more addiction, John. I started buying plants. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I started buying shit and I, right. Like (laughs) I ran, I started running until I hurt my foot and I couldn't run anymore. And then it was 18 months with a nerve in bottom of my foot screaming at me. And like, I'm now back on it, but I realize now I cannot, I'm an obsessive person. We're yeah. all obsessive on something on some level. Yeah. You know, we, we've all got it in and for neurodivergent people, like for my son, for me, for my sister, even for my husband on some levels, like there's always that like one special interest that like we can never get enough of. Mm-hmm. Okay. For my son, it's like Avengers, anything. Do you, I have so many action heroes, like everything is Avenger in this house Everything is also Pokemon in this house because Mm -hmm. of my husband. Everything is also Taylor Swift in this house because my sister is like one of those famous TikTok Swifties. And she is like hyper fixated on Taylor Swift. I love it because I love Taylor Swift. I love Pokemon. I love the Avengers. I'm a book nerd and a plant nerd. I am obsessed with researching things like obsessed, like I will deep dive into things and become an expert in that topic, like a quote unquote expert, just from the amount of research that I do. That's the type of like obsession and addiction that I I have to the things that interest me and that we all have to a certain extent to other things. But when it's with alcohol, with any sort of drug or pill or anything like that, like it's just, it's, it's, it's a different ball game, right? It, it has the potential to kill us and destroy us. Yeah. Plants and Pokemon don't usually do that. I know. Unless you have so much stuff that you just end up drowning in it. Right. Like, like in Harry Potter, when they like, <laughs> they like touch the thing and it multiplies and mm-hmm. they're like drowning and like burning from all of their, yeah, I am afraid. Like you see my basement. I only see a couple, but yeah, you only see, you only see a few things because most of it is like <laughs> toddler eye level. Right. Um, so I don't want to keep you for too much longer. I thank you for your time. Um, but I, so, so advice on sobriety, on recovery, on, on simply being able to, uh, to quit drinking, to quit struggling. Like what, 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 what advice might you give to somebody who says, Hey, I don't know if this is even my problem or maybe I should quit or how would I even start? Give me a minute. Um, 
I take this very seriously. You may or may not know, but I was an advice columnist for a couple of years. I didn't know that. Yeah. (laughs) So I take giving advice very seriously. Well, yeah. And it doesn't need to be like grandiose or it can be simple. I just, I'm always curious. Like if someone says, Hey, Wolf, I'm thinking about quitting drinking, but I'm not really sure how to go about it. My advice is this. No one other than you is going to know if your addiction is ruling over your life. No one other than you is going to know whether alcohol is a huge problem for you because they aren't you. They aren't living in your brain. They aren't living in your body. They don't have access to all of your past traumas that your somatic and your nervous system hold. They don't have the same like chemical shit going on inside of them as you. The only way that you're going to be able to do it, to get sober, to overcome addiction, whatever that addiction may be, is to know yourself and be really, really honest with yourself and either seek help externally, you know, through a 12-step program or find your reason to not do it. I didn't seek help externally because I have issues with asking other people for help. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a, a do it yourself kind of gal, right? I'm the person that's like, I'm not going to hire somebody to build a fence. I'll just do it. Fun fact. I'm in the middle of doing that right now. I don't recommend. No. Okay. But like, that's my journey. That's me. I didn't seek help. I found my reason. I found multiple reasons and mm-hmm. I found a new addiction, which is buying plants. <laughs> That's an acceptable one for sure. That's acceptable. Yes. Um, It's not harming anybody. No. Air quality in my home is fantastic. I bet. So if you find your reason, you stick to your reason and you got to openly communicate that reason. You got to openly communicate to people, I'm sober. And it's none of their business really, but like if they want to be in your life, they got to know it can't be this like hush, hush, like secret. And I know that that's really hard. I know that it's really hard. Anyone who's struggling out there, if you're listening to me and you say, how do I like not drink socially? If you have social anxiety like me, it feels impossible. I, I would say, get some sugar, get a sugar addiction. Um, <laughs> just trade one for the other. Okay. <clears throat> it's a good it's, start for sure. Whether it's Reese's or fruit mm-hmm. snacks or whatever. I'm um, on frozen grapes right now, which is a little bit healthier, but it's, it's good. They're really good. Look at you. Good for you. I'm, I'm working a, on it. I'm a pastry girl yes. through and through <laughs> baby. <laughs> um, just Okay. But like, and I know that that might seem like, oh, wow, that's like not wise at all. But honestly, it's hard. It's hard. Every day is hard. And like I just said to John, like the night before he contacted me, I was like, maybe I could go back to drinking. You know, you're going to have that pop up. Um, But like, it's sort of like before sending the email, wait a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
before like acting on that trigger, like that knee jerk response, wait a day, wait a day and reach out to somebody. Even if that person drinks, be like, Hey, Mm -hmm. I'm having an issue. Cause you're not going to get through it alone. You're not going to get through it without a reason or without some sort of accountability program. You're just not right. We all need some sort of community, some sort of reason, some sort of like higher power involved. Yes. So find it. I think that's like really dig (laughs) deep into yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You got to find, find your reason and ask for help, whatever that means to you. And that's different for everyone. Um, Thanks for, thanks for talking to me today. That's super cool to get to know you a little bit more instead of just the way that I have, you know, obviously parasocially online is kind of, can be kind of weird and you assume things, but like, this was fantastic. And it was really, it was really nice to meet you and, and, and to hear your story. And I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you. And thank you for having this podcast because now it's definitely something that I will listen to because I love hearing other people's stories and just thank you for having me on. Um, and yeah, thank you. Thank you for being a friend. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do. Thank you. You bet part of the wolf pack and everything and you're yes. you're a tremendous human being and um i'm just so glad that we made this connection you made this connection <laughs> me too me too thanks again for listening our music as always is by neglect you can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com and you can find us on all social media platforms that matter instagram facebook and twitter and you can reach us at a is for alcoholic at gmail.com talk to you later Yeah.